The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by Advocates for Youth. In politics, young people have a litmus test too, and it includes abortion access. Visit advocatesforyouth.org slash litmus to learn more. On Tuesday afternoon, a 29-year-old Uzbek immigrant, Seifalo Saipov, allegedly drove a rental truck down a bicycle path on the lower west side of Manhattan. Saipov said he was inspired to carry out the attack by the Islamic State. Eight people, pedestrians and cyclists who were on the path, were killed, and at least a dozen were injured before the driver left the vehicle carrying a paintball gun and a pellet gun. A police officer then shot the driver in the stomach. He's still alive. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, President Trump has responded by calling for policy changes. So we want to immediately work with Congress on the diversity lottery program, on terminating it, getting rid of it. We want a merit-based program where people come into our country based on merit. And we want to get rid of chain migration. But are these proposed immigration policies the best way to combat terrorism? What other policy approaches fight terror, and what's effective? Plus, how much power does a president himself have to combat terrorism in the United States? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. On today's show, we talk to an expert to learn about the ways that terrorist groups recruit and whether the U.S. can curb those efforts. Plus, we examine with an author and professor the extent to which presidents have power to influence counterterrorism policy and to prevent future attacks. But first, to help us answer this critical question, can Trump keep us safe from terror attacks, we have White House reporter David Nakamura back on the show. David, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Happy to be here. So we've seen a deadly terrorist attack in New York City on Tuesday. What do we know about the man suspected of committing this crime? Well, we know that he is an immigrant from Uzbekistan who came in 2010, and he came through a program called the Diversity Visa Lottery. And this is uh, something that was created under George H.W. Bush in 1990 to offer green cards, which allow legal permanent residency in the United States, to people from many countries who are generally those countries are underrepresented. And it was originally created to allow these kind of folks to come in, but now it's being seized by Donald Trump and others as a program that we should take a second look at and maybe shut down because of this connection with this uh, gentleman who created this terrorist attack. And do we know how he was radicalized or when? Well, authorities believe that he was radicalized here in the United States, which undercuts to some degree a sense that letting foreigners into the country through programs like this is problematic in that they can certainly access this material from the United States as some you know native-born Americans have and get uh, radicalized through the internet. There's connected to terrorism, to ISIS. It appears that it's been something that he was inspired by, um, these terrorist groups. Um, Not clear that he had direct connections with them. So Trump's reacted to this attack in a way that's seemingly unusual for a president. First, he attacks Democratic minority leader Chuck Schumer on Twitter in regards to the diversity visa lottery program, which you mentioned. His tweet said, this terrorist came into our country through what is called the diversity visa lottery program, a Chuck Schumer beauty. So is it unusual for a president to publicly attack not only an existing policy, but also a political foe in the moments after a tragedy? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's very unprecedented. And, you know, Trump had a smorgasbord of attacks yesterday in the wake of this and included everyone from Chuck Schumer to the diversity lottery uh, and then also started talking about wanting to send uh, the suspect to uh, Guantanamo Bay in the Gitmo prison there, 
which is you know something President Obama was trying to close. So he sort of ran through all of these, but it certainly was unusual that he would attack the Democratic Senate minority leader in the way that he did. Not so much that Trump would attack him, which he does quite a bit, but in the, in those moments and try to sort of capitalize on it right away. Yeah, I mean, even in in a news conference the following day, he he called the justice system's handling of suspects a joke and a laughingstock. Why might Trump use that kind of rhetoric? What is he trying to accomplish? Well, he's trying to sort of give new urgency and life to his legislative agenda, which has been pretty much bottled up in Congress, but also in the courts, especially on immigration. Trump ran on being tough on terrorism, tough on immigration law, tough on crime. And he's throughout his presidency, like in his campaign, he's tried to create a sense that the world is dangerous and we need to take much more drastic action to confront that and protect Americans who might feel vulnerable. And so on something like this, he's using this to forward that agenda, trying to use it and make people feel like we're behind the ball here in changing the laws, which are not easy to change. In fact, both parties have sort of tried to address some of these issues, both on everything from immigration to terrorist laws to gun control, which, of course, is is not necessarily relevant in this case, but has been in other incidents in recent weeks, we know. So the question is, can Trump use or exploit this moment to do so? He certainly could potentially rile up his base, but he certainly could also uh, face greater blowback from folks on the other side. Yeah. And you mentioned gun control. We saw a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas, a devastating attack there. Trump, in the aftermath of that, said, let's not talk about policy. It's too soon. This is not the time. And within moments of this tragedy in New York, he seems to be talking about policy. Does that add up? Well, no. The policy that he didn't want to talk about then was something that he and Republicans didn't want to address, which is stricter gun control laws. And of course, Democrats certainly made the case after the shooting, although not in the maybe the immediate moments. Some might have. But the White House and the press spokeswoman, Sarah Sanders, all said, look, it's too, too early. Uh, members of Congress said it's too early. We don't want to politicize this. So now on the flip side, they want to make these changes to laws uh, on immigration and just maybe even criminal justice. So they are using it in a way that they hope that that it can. So is all of this part of a larger approach from Trump in terms of his philosophy on immigrants, his philosophy on outsiders? Have we seen this as part of a pattern? Yes, absolutely. Trump has tried to create this idea that immigrants, not just undocumented or illegal immigrants, not just those coming in on programs that might have ties to terrorists, but more largely are a threat to Americans, both on sort of competing for jobs and economics, but also on making things more dangerous in the country. I I think the the immigrant advocates would say he's tarred a large group of immigrants to try to sort of promote this agenda. And, you know, what's strikingly different from the way President Obama talked about uh, terrorist attacks uh, or terrorist threats to the United States is President Obama went out of his way to try to create the idea that this is not an existential threat to the United States, that these attacks are scary. Um, certainly they're, you know, something we need to deal with. Certainly for those families affected, it's devastating. But in, for the society, they're trying to strike fear through sort of smaller acts in, in a much larger system. President uh, Bush, to some degree, also said that, you know, that we don't want to let the terrorists win uh, by affecting and disrupting our lives. You know, President Trump, I think, does the opposite. He tries to create and, and build on these events and make them somewhat more bigger in some ways to try to strike fear into the public uh, in ways that maybe can promote his agenda. What repercussions might this fear-inducing rhetoric have when it comes to ISIS recruitment and organization? And how have terrorist groups changed their approach since 9-11? Medea Ufsel, a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution, answers these questions and explains how we got here. So 
how do terrorist organizations like ISIS recruit and radicalize people to carry out terrorist attacks in the United States? You know, ISIS has propaganda uh, that it uses to recruit people directly, but also to inspire people. So, you know, there are ISIS-directed attacks, which might be from individuals who are actually directed by ISIS to take specific actions. Or there may be ISIS-inspired attacks, which individuals who, you know, read or, or listen to ISIS propaganda online undertake. And essentially, you know, sort of a key premise of their rhetoric and propaganda is that there is a war between Islam and the West. That's extremism. But in terms of violent extremism, you know, what takes an individual from becoming an extremist to somebody who actually undertakes violence either on behalf of ISIS or themselves there needs to be something, in my view, that snaps in order for them to do so. So there's some innate, you know, alienation, resentment that has occurred in an individual anger. And when they see this kind of higher purpose that they can subscribe to in order to give their, you know, anger this outlet and higher purpose, obviously, in their minds, they'll do so. Does that ISIS propaganda promote violence? So ISIS propaganda certainly does promote violence, yes. ISIS and its propaganda has evolved in the context of U.S. counterterrorism policy. U.S. counterterrorism policy in the wake of 9-11 kind of focused on the threat that that we knew, which was al-Qaeda, and the kinds of large-scale attacks that al-Qaeda could carry out, you know, with bombs, with planes. And so essentially what the U.S. focused on was dismantling al-Qaeda, and also making sure that security was higher in terms of airport security and security um, in terms of getting into into the U.S. to conduct an attack. Now, ISIS has evolved and become this large militant organization in light of that policy. So their attacks tend to be much more diffuse and tend to be much harder to prevent because any individual can, you know, rent a truck and ram it into pedestrians, use knives, use guns. You know, you don't have to have access to bomb-making equipment. And so, you know, its propaganda promotes violence, but it also does so in ways that take into account the reality of heightened security. And it does so in a way that is actually much harder to prevent. So you're suggesting that some of the policies that we've seen evolve since 9-11 have actually been effective in debilitating groups like al-Qaeda, but perhaps less effective with groups like ISIS because ISIS is distributing media through the Internet, distributing propaganda and recruiting people that way. Yeah, absolutely. So I think our counterterrorism policy was created to counter al-Qaeda, and it actually did an excellent job of that. But in some sense, in doing so, it actually missed the rise of ISIS because it was so focused on al-Qaeda. So so not only did it miss the rise of ISIS, it also, you know, the, the Bush and the Obama administrations were careful about the wording and sort of the rhetoric that they used. But the the policy, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, drone strikes uh, uh, that that some argued killed innocent civilians, actually ended up creating a new generation of people who were resentful of the United States and who found it easier to subscribe to extremist propaganda. So not only did it miss the rise of this new militant organization, it also missed the rise of growing extremism because it did not put in place 
soft measures to counter extremism. You know, there were the hard measures to counter terrorism, but and sort of the military and the security aspects of it. But the soft measures to counter actual extremist mindset weren't put in place. The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by Advocates for Youth. Young people have a political litmus test, too, and it includes abortion access. That's because today's young people support reproductive rights and justice, as well as racial justice and equal rights for all. This is their future, and Advocates for Youth are here to make sure young people's voices are heard. Visit advocatesforyouth.org litmus to take their litmus test and learn more. Maria suggested there are some ways that an administration might make an impact, but how much power is concentrated in the hands of the president when it comes to counterterrorism policy? Audrey Kurth-Cronin, international relations professor at American University and author of How Terrorism Ends, explains. When we assess counterterrorism policy in the United States, there's essentially these three buckets that an administration can use to combat terrorism. So we have immigration, intelligence and surveillance, and then military action abroad. So let's dive into each of these, starting with immigration. We've seen Trump's attempts to implement very hardline immigration policies in the United States, mostly in the form of the travel ban. Now, in the wake of this attack, Trump is suggesting we get rid of the diversity visa lottery program. First of all, can you just briefly explain what that program is and whether or not Trump has the power to undo that kind of program? Sure. Well, the diversity visa program allows a lottery every year in which 50,000 people are allowed through random selection and then careful screening after the selection to enter the United States. And it was a part of legislation that was passed in 1990. As for whether Trump can undo it, not undo it because it's legislation. And legislation is under the control of Congress. So I would not use that word. He does have a tremendous amount of power, though, under other legislation that is passed by Congress, under the U.S. Code. He actually has the power to prevent any aliens or any class of aliens under the U.S. Code from entering the United States by proclamation on his part and for any period of time. So that's extremely broad, and that's part of uh, legislation that's longstanding. On the other hand, if during that proclamation or by making that proclamation, he impinges upon the rights of U.S. citizens or longtime residents, then he has impinged upon the basic construct of the Constitution, and he cannot get away with that. So one of the reasons we're going through this fight over the travel ban is the question of whether or not the travel ban impinges upon the rights of those who live in the United States not the aliens per se. Right. So another area in terms of immigration where Trump has said that he would make changes is he has suggested that the State Department ramp up something that he calls extreme vetting. First of all, what what is extreme vetting beyond the vetting we already do today? Well, that's to some degree not fully explained (laughs) because extreme vetting can have lots of different interpretations and it's a matter of policy. It means things like going into much more depth in terms of background checks, making people jump through a lot more hoops in terms of how much information they disclose. But the short answer to your question as to how much power he has is he's got huge power. Mm-hmm. He's allowed to make the State Department do whatever he wants, essentially, because he's in charge of the executive branch. Let's move on now to intelligence gathering, this other bucket. 
The Patriot Act increased counterterrorism surveillance passed by Congress and signed into law by George W. Bush in 2001 following the September 11th attacks. If Trump or any president wants to, let's say, increase levels of surveillance on a particular group, how much power might he be able to do, might he have to do so? Well, there's a key distinction between the power that he has at home and the power that he has abroad. So in terms of the ability to increase surveillance abroad, the CIA already does pretty much whatever it thinks the president is interested in having it do. So the president has enormous power with respect to foreign nationals who are living abroad. When it comes to surveillance in the United States, the powers of the executive are much more constrained. But unfortunately, there's always this but in today's technological world. The question of when you're actually collecting information on American citizens is not as obvious as you think because with the ability to sweep up massive amounts of data, that information is often inadvertently collected and then processed. The question of where exactly to draw that line is very contentious. One area where the president has a lot more power is in terms of military force. So it, there's a, an authorization for the use of military force put in place in 2001 by Congress that basically gives the president a large amount of power when it comes to military aggression. So t tell me more about that. Well, the authorization for the use of military force is a, a document that was passed by Congress on September 18th, immediately after the September 11th attacks. It's extremely broad, and it's the first authorization of its kind in the sense that it gives the right to use force against persons, organizations, and nations that supported the attacks of September 11th. Most of the time, authorizations for the use of military force have been against states. Mm -hmm. So you know when it ends because you've defeated that state government. But uh, we went into uncharted territory after September 11th when we were talking about the ability to use force against persons and organizations and the potential future use of terrorism by persons and organizations and states. So we're still struggling with exactly what to do. It's, it's one of the reasons why there's been a tremendous increase in executive power and the ability to use force since September 11th. The Congress has taken up the question of whether to replace the authorization for the use of force in hearings a number of times, but there are very complicated calculations that they engage in, too. They don't necessarily want to prevent the president from using force in a situation where they may be blamed for some sort of horrible thing that happens in the future. So... Now we've sort of assessed all of these different possible approaches to counterterrorism. Are there ones that we have, obviously, there's ones that we haven't touched upon. Can you address other ways that the U.S. can counterterrorism through policy? Sure. Actually, there's a whole range of things we didn't touch upon. And there are some very clear patterns for ways that many groups have ended. And particularly with respect to al-Qaeda and ISIS, some of the things that have been very effective have been cooperating much more with allies abroad, much greater and stronger counterterrorism intelligence ties with other allies. We've been building warmer ties with many of the communities that have members who are recruited or potentially recruited by ISIS. That's something that is an important thing that we need to pay attention to. And, and the hearings that were happening on the Hill with respect to Facebook and all of the other social media platforms and what kinds of information they're responsible for vetting. Those are right at the very heart of the future of counterterrorism. 
And are we seeing the Trump administration take steps to put any of these policies into place or do these things that you speak of? Well, many of the policies with respect to closer involvement with allies have been put into place gradually by all of the, well, for, for decades, but but especially since, since 9-11, by all of the administrations. There's been a tr- building of much closer ties with many international allies and partners. And we're beginning to reap some of the benefit of that. In fact, the number of attacks in the United States, remember, despite the fact that we have had a horrible tragedy in New York, the number of terrorist attacks since September 11th was much lower than it had been on average before then. To summarize this, do counterterrorism policies work? What is effective? What will be helpful to, for the Trump administration to look towards in the aftermath of this particular attack? Some counterterrorism policies work. They have to be tailored to the nature of the particular group that you're facing. And I can tell you that there are things that uh, enable groups to fail. One of the most classic reasons why terrorism ends is that a group will begin to implode or will lose its own popular support. And the advantage of taking that kind of approach to terrorism is that you can make sure that the threat fails over the long term. One of the problems is that if you use repression and a lot of overwhelming military force, you can have terrorist groups move from the place where you've used that force into local regions, or you can have the cause continue to persist after the group is is gone, and then you have a resurgence of terrorism. So what you really want to do if you want to end that threat is to undermine the thing that drives it and to help it to fail from within, to implode. And then the second side of that, which is extremely important, is not to whip up anxiety and fear on the part of your own population. Because when you do that, you're making a huge strategic error. You're making it much more attractive to attack the target, and you're losing the ability to take a balanced approach that has many different elements to it. So those things can actually happen at the presidential level, right? How much power does a president have when it comes to to these initiatives, when it comes to counterterrorism? Well, the executive branch has enormous power, and they're continuing to to exercise that. Many of the kinds of measures that I'm talking about, the FBI, the CIA, the National Counterterrorism Center, all of the various agencies are still heavily involved in. But it is very true that what a president says can have an enormous impact and it can either help or hurt counterterrorism policy. David, on the campaign trail, before Trump had any power to take actions on some things, he had a lot of heated rhetoric about how he was going to combat ISIS. He talked about the Muslim ban. He talked about stealing their oil or taking away their oil, rather. He talked about bombing the expletive out of ISIS repeatedly. So he seems to have really tried to push forward on some of these actions. We've seen a travel ban. We've certainly, we saw the Moab, the mother of all bombs, attack an ISIS compound. So many of Trump's policies often get whittled down to saying, this is just talk. We're not actually seeing any action. We are seeing some action on his ISIS strategies. We, we are, to some degree. You're right. The difference, though, is that he announced three times that he would have a travel ban, and now all three times he's been blocked in the federal courts. So to some degree, he has tried to move forward, and he has had taken action. And other times, though, he's been stopped, and sometimes by his own words, because the judges are citing that comments by him and his advisors previously that the travel ban, for example, is an effort to keep out Muslims from the country. So, But on the other hand, he, you're right, on, uh, on areas where a president 
president can act more unilaterally on the battlefield. Um, you have seen him do more. But I think what you're seeing now is Trump trying to you know, make the case again that we need the policies that he has promoted and that the country is weak on immigration, weak on crime. And, you know, he said, look, it, yesterday he was saying, look, we, we can't be politically correct anymore. I don't think that, you know, others would say it's politically correct to give people their due process to allow them to go through the, the criminal system before, you know, declaring them guilty. I think that's the, the big difference here. Right. And so now that this has happened and we've seen Trump talking about this again in a reignited way, do we expect to see more action from him? Uh, I think, you know, the question is that in what he sort of seemed to indicate he understood, even as he talked tough, was a lot of what he's saying needs congressional action. So he talked about getting rid of this diversity visa program. It's about 50,000 visas a year. In the grand scheme of thing, we give about a million green cards a year to foreigners each year. So it's a tiny drop of that. But even to get rid of it uh, would take congressional action. And there's a bill out there from Tom Cotton and David Perdue in the Senate that Trump has supported that would, uh, among other things, get rid of that program while slashing legal immigration. Trump has promoted it, but Democrats don't want to do it. And even a lot of Republicans don't want to do it. And the problem for Trump right now is that he wants to act. He wants to do things. He wants to look like he's getting tough, but he's going to need the support of uh, Congress, going to need the support of courts. And he even said that although he would like to send the suspect in this attack in New York to Guantanamo Bay, he said, oh, that would take longer than actually going through the federal system. So he sort of suggested, like, by spouting off and saying that he wants to send someone to Guantanamo Bay, that actually requires uh, more uh, paperwork and process uh, than he might want to put in. Yeah. So then along those lines, how will he measure success? Trump is a numbers guy. Is he going to look at his presidency and say this many fewer people died from terrorist attacks or this many fewer attacks happened? Or can he even call something a success if anybody's dying? Like, how do, how do you think Trump will Right. And this was a, one of the first, uh, you know, terrorist act that that killed people in New York since 9-11. So uh, on one hand, that's bad for Trump. You know, he's promised to keep people safe. On the other hand, certainly he's going to use this to try to promote his agenda. And so I think Ultimately, it's not necessarily just a, a count of how many were d- dead or injured, but ultimately, if people feel safer, and it ties in not just with national security, but also perhaps numbers on immigration, on jobs, on the economy. It's not just simply, I think, uh, you know, whether the number of attacks go down or up. So, okay, so that brings us to our final question, or can he do that question? And this week, it's a big question, but can Trump's rhetoric and policies actually keep Americans safe from ISIS? <laughs> no, just by saying uh, the rhetoric can't just keep countries safe from ISIS. I think his policies, the question here, I think, really boils down to, if you want to build a wall, if you want to slash immigration rates, that's one thing. But the idea that's behind some of these terrorist attacks can spread virally through the internet and a lot of other ways. And Americans can go abroad and be radicalized. So it's not that simple. And, you know, if you if you talk to folks on the other side of the debate, they say, look, the more we close off to the world, the more we look like we're keeping people away and talking badly about them. That's actually going to inspire more radicalization against the West and against the U.S. ideals that we're trying to promote as an open and free society that's tolerant could come back to harm us. So that's what President Obama tried to argue. That's what Democrats and others would argue, even some Republicans. And so Trump is making the other argument. And he's saying, look, it's okay to be scared. Uh, We should be scared. And we need to take drastic action. So he's taking a a big bet on that. I don't think that uh, in the end, though, that that necessarily is the, you know, full story. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You guys can follow David Nakamura on Twitter at David Nakamura. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? You guys can find us wherever you subscribe to podcasts, or you can check out our new page at wapo.st slash can he do that? 
And while you're there, don't forget to grab tickets to our upcoming live show. This is the last time you're going to hear about it on the Can He Do That podcast, but we've got an upcoming live show November 7th, that's Tuesday, at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., so grab your tickets now. I'll be there joined by legendary Watergate reporter Bob Woodward, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty, and 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold. One year after Donald Trump's historic election, we are going to go through the biggest moments of the year that made you ask, can he do that? And if you want to be a part of our live show but can't be there, submit your questions to me via email at allison.michaels at washpost.com or on Twitter at allisonmikes, and we'll try to answer all of your questions in the live show. Get your tickets now at livenation.com. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the dedicated and diligent Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.